Welcome back, guys. Welcome back, SOS fans, friends. SOS or saucers. I almost said lovers. Well, yeah, that works. Oh, yeah. I like that. Saucer lovers. Ugh. Fans, friends, and lovers. <laughs> Sound like a smooth jazz station now. Yeah, I was going to say, I was like, really feel like we're... Late, um, late night with Delilah. Our audience is a dentist's <laughs> office lobby right now. Anywho, <laughs> we are going to be talking to someone very special. Uh, she goes by Marcy. Uh, we wanted to keep her last name and like, we won't be talking about her location and exactly the place that she works for you know, because she still works there and you want to protect her identity on that front. So she is a therapist and social worker for the um, for the prison system. But she works specifically with juveniles. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it's topical anyway, because me and Molly and a lot of us were just so passionate about uh, prison reform and defunding the police. And we're going to be talking a lot about that today and 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 through the perspective of a social worker, of a therapist that knows firsthand uh, with her experience working with these clients, like how our how how flawed the system is. And yeah, all the work that needs to be done, because a lot of these kids don't have a shot. Yeah. And like explaining to us how why they don't have a shot because i know that's where a lot of people get hung up like i get it things are unfair but Mm -hmm. the details of how they are targeted or they're swept back into the system and never let go of the details of that i know a lot of people don't know and that's where it gets murky and it stops people from really getting as involved but but she breaks it down like clear patterns and exactly how they get roped in and it's it's very enlightening i can't wait for you guys to hear this conversation she was incredible i want her back yeah so So. without further ado enjoy please welcome to the pod marcy hello hey thank you guys so much for having me of course thank you for for spending some time with us like I'm sure in this quarantine that you're like still pretty busy, like you're still pretty busy working still, right? I'm still working, but on the days I'm not working, I'm doing absolutely nothing. So I'm super thankful <laughs> to have like something to do. Perfect. <laughs> Same, but that's every day. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Awesome. Okay. Well, I, I just want to jump right into it. So like yeah. what, what made you want to get into social work and yeah what made you want to get into social work and like specifically the prison system like yeah is that something like did therapy and then were you like i want to be some type of therapist and then it led to that or were you like i want to be involved in the prison system and then it led to therapy it was totally therapy first i was like 12 when i decided like i'm gonna be a therapist you were like a 12 year old like i'm gonna be in the prison system (laughs) i wish that would be way more badass if i could be like yeah when i was 12 i decided i wanted to go to prison but like the right way (laughs) i'm gonna reform (laughs) so cute um and my mom actually she beat me to it being a social worker Uh, so she graduated my last year of high school. She graduated with, with her bachelor's in social work. Oh, cool. Wow. Yeah. She's amazing. And then she got her master's while I was getting my degree. 
and I was going to be a psychologist. I was like, I knew that was what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And then about an hour into my orientation in psychology, they were like, you want to be a social worker. And I was oh. like, oh, I don't really know what those do, but my mom's one. And so, <laughs> Whoa. so wait, so like what, you specifically, like they pointed that out to you on a, in a one-on-one -on -one thing. Yeah. I told them what I wanted to do at that time. I was all about, I was like drug counseling. I really wanted to do drug yeah. counseling. Um, but I told them I want to do one-on-one -on -one therapy and stuff like that. And they were like, yeah, you don't want to be a psychologist. You want to be a social worker. Oh, um, interesting. Was it because you wanted to focus on drug counseling? I think it was probably like now that I understand the differences, because there are so many ways to be a therapist. Mm. Yeah. And now that I get that, I think what they were getting at was that I wanted to do individual therapy and they were basically letting me know there's no reason to get a doctorate to do that. You can just uh, get a master's degree and ma gotcha. make making it easier for yourself, basically. And That's like, great. well, I guess with, with all therapy there is, I was going to say there's like an element to social change and social consciousness, consciousness that comes with like dealing with addictions within communities. Mm -hmm. And like that lends itself to social work as well. When you talk about like, reform i mean obviously like the prison system but like people who have been thrown into certain circumstances not at their at no fault of their own and grow up in these worlds where like they're surrounded by drugs like that all lends to social work so i that makes sense yeah and that's the so, hugest part of it and like you and your yeah. mom she's getting her master's while you were getting your bachelor's right so you're like studying the same thing at the same time that's so cool it was great. I saved so much money on books. Yeah. Oh, I bet. That's like a dream situation. <laughs> Pretty good. Wait, so kind of, can you like briefly explain um, for, I don't know, maybe not so smart people like myself, like uh, <laughs> specifically like social work? Because I'm actually interested in that and in, in like how yeah. and what the work they do specifically, maybe what you do specifically. So social work is like this big, broad world. Mm -hmm. um, when we think of like social workers, when people are talking about it, usually they're talking about like uh, case managers. So people who are out in communities doing community work, setting up task forces and things like that. Um, but then there's another element to it where most most like individual therapy is really done by social workers and counselors. Mm. Um, so, and that's an aspect people don't usually think about. They think of like the social welfare and social justice. Right. But we actually take that same like community look and that systems look and just apply it to individual therapy and do a lot of that stuff too, gotcha. which is so more my side than yeah, like out on the streets. Yeah. So what made you want to do like focus in the prison system? Yeah. That's what I was going to add. Um, so that was honestly, almost a hilarious mistake. <laughs> when I was getting my master's degree, I was interviewing for, uh, for internships and I wasn't fully reading the descriptions of the places I was interviewing for. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> I, I can get, <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'll take anything. I just need something. Um, so the place I'm working at now, I actually did my internship there, but I went to the interview thinking that it was some sort of like reform school type thing. I wasn't sure. Um, and then they started mentioning like, you know, do whatever you have to do to go home. You know, we don't 
provide safety classes, but if you have to take a kid down, you can do that. And I was like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> and then it clicked. I was like, this is a prison. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. Did it make you, but it obviously didn't turn you off from it. No, I was like, that's badass. And also I'm never going to take someone down anyway. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's so interesting. So how long ago did you start like right away was it like like how did you get into it like get hired at it like is that how it works like does what does a system like does one person hire you like how does that work um so the system I'm working in is super difficult to explain yeah I'm calling it a prison because it's essentially a prison yeah, the yeah. place isn't like a prison but whatever um I was just super lucky and really, really annoying uh, that once I finished my internship, I just kept emailing them and being like, hire me, hire me, hire me. And then eventually they did. Um, and I'm a state employee, so I could work at other like state places. So I could work at a different state prison if I wanted okay. to. Okay. Gotcha. Um, so yeah. you specifically work with young adults, right? Mm -hmm. So did it, was it always that way or did you want that did you specifically were like okay i'd rather work with like juveniles or how, how did that come about or was that just fall into place and you like um i've always been about like teenagers specifically mm. um so i always knew i wanted to do that and i always knew i kind of wanted to work with helping kids that were just in the worst situations so it came together really beautifully for me uh, and the agency I work with is all juveniles. We don't have any adults. The facility is just kids. Yeah. What's so the age that, range for that? It is, we take kids from 14 to 18. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So just, so just like purely high school age. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, is, there are a lot of hormones. There's yeah. <laughs> and is it a range of like, of reasons that they're there for everything from like drug to violent crimes or is there like a I don't know I don't know anything about that like how they separate the kids mm -hmm, versus mm -hmm. like due to the like the physical intensity of the crime or or is it, are you doing just drug related there so I actually don't I ended up abandoning my drug related dreams um <laughs> <laughs> Oh, that's too bad. It's too bad. Someday I might go back to it. Yeah. <laughs> so we actually have uh, 10 different units and they all have different like issues of kids. Anyone who comes to us has to have a felony, not in a convicted felony, but a juvenile felony. Mm. Um, and then they're kind of sorted out based on like our most violent criminals, uh, less violent offenses, drug offenses, sexual offenses, um, and then serious mental illness. And then girls. We just have one unit of just girls. Mm -hmm. Okay. Because it's that much smaller. Way smaller. Yeah. It's alarming and concerning. Yeah. Interesting. So many, so many questions. I also <laughs> want to ask you like, yeah. Do you notice, I know it depends, of course it varies like state to state and, but like where you are, do you notice a huge discrepancy in the race of the kids that are in there? Massive, like yeah. massive. I would say 
I mean, I don't have the statistics mm-hmm. or access to the statistics, mm-hmm. but at least with the kids I work with, and I work with parole violators, which are mostly violent offending youth and gang youth, uh-huh. um, no more than 10% white. Wow. Wow. There's no way. Yeah. The discrepancy is ridiculous. Yeah. For for girls and, and for the boys? For the girls, I don't know. The girls are different. Just they come in for different offenses. They have way different histories. So mm. I'm trying to think off the top of my head. We might have a slightly higher white population among yeah. the girls, but I'm not 100% sure. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting yeah. because it makes you... There's so many ways that we categorize ourselves. Like I'm a female. Mm -hmm. I'm also a white female. I'm also a white female who went to college. Like there's all these different ways we can categorize ourselves. And it's interesting with such a small population where you are of it, of females there, but the, but the race, the, it seems to be like more evenly dispersed, like racial makeup of the females. Is that what you're saying? It's a little bit more. It might be. It's definitely not reflective of the general population, though. Okay. I was, yeah, I was wondering because I'm like, the fact that not to the same degree, but women, all women are in an oppressed group. Mm -hmm. And then it varies based on your race within being a woman, of course. But like Mm -hmm. with men, white men are, are the top of everything. And so with it being like that many that disproportionate in the male section is interesting. Yeah, it's alarming. And it goes, it depends a little bit based on the offenses. Uh I've noticed, and this is just my own, what I've seen since I've been there, Mm -hmm. that we have a higher number of white males who commit nonviolent offenses than we do white males who are committing and being convicted of violent offenses. Interesting. I wonder why that is. I wonder if they're just not getting arrested for violent crimes enough, right? Because I don't know. I don't know. She's like, you guys more excuses given. She's like, yes, that's it. It's like it's easy to look at numbers, and people are like, "Well, this looks like uh, white people aren't committing enough crimes or (laughs) these many crimes," and it's like, "No, bitch, we're just not arrested for this shit." Yeah. Well, with your work specifically, like, do you have a, a like a certain amount of of I, I I call them clients, but do you call them some clients that you work with individually? Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I right now I have two. We go by units for the most part. Right. Right. Um. So I have two units that I oversee, and one is our temporary coronavirus unit, and then the other mm-hmm. one is our um, parole violators unit. Okay. So those okay. are my little domains. Gotcha. So, sorry, Alyssa. Yeah. Oh, no, no, you can't. You go. Um, when you, uh, when you just meet them, like, cause I'm guessing that a lot of them aren't just like super eager to talk, like share their story and like really delve into why they've done these, th- you know? So it's like, how do you start? Like, how do you approach, how do you relate mm-hmm. when they look at you and they might be, because the way the world has been to them, it's like, what is this white girl going to say to me that like, how do you break that barrier and connect with them when, as especially at that age? I think like giving them the space that they need and time, it might take months for a kid to open up. 
Um, but then also being really honest about like, I'm a white person in the system coming here and asking you all these personal questions and just validating that with them, that it's totally okay if they don't want to open up to me because I represent everything that brought them here. Right. Mm -hmm. Wow. Like, do you, do you ever feel like, and this could be a loaded question, but do you ever feel like you want to do more, especially if you have a client in your unit that's a repeated offender and, and, and you know their history and you've talked to them and you just kind of conflicted because you feel like, you know, this is there's so many circumstances that are working against them and 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 you and you're really rooting for them, but they keep getting arrested. Like, how do you do you empathize with them on that level? And do you think and how does how do you think that like helps them? Like that's a great question. And that's like most of my um, that really hits home because I have a couple kids like that right yeah, now who yeah. I've been working with for years. Um, and I think being able to every time they come back, meeting them with like, okay, what can we learn from what you did on the outs and what can we do moving forward? Mm-hmm. And letting them know that like, all right, you messed up and we're moving on and we're continuing. Yeah. Seems to be the most helpful. And like, it's got to be something too to seeing a familiar face when they get back. I hope so. Sometimes they hide from me for a little bit. Yeah. That's okay too. But that's, you know, because they know you and then they have some kind of concern for what you think of them. You know, it's like not, it's got to be because out of some level of respect. Otherwise, if, they, if you don't respect somebody, you don't care what they think, you know? Yeah, there is definitely, I think they expect for people to be really angry with them every time they mess up. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, even though I'm like, I'm ready to just like understand where you're coming from. They're expecting me to come at it from like a, you know, you fucked up. How could you? Do you, uh, I mean, I could like guess on so many things. This might be a dumb question, but like, what are the like completely overlying patterns that once you start to talk to them and hear about their life and their childhood, are there things that are like, always come up like people who have committed certain level of violent acts always just as an example like there's always abuse within their family or there's always this like are there some really strong patterns that you recognize i think the strongest patterns that i recognize are just like patterns within their family systems Mm -hmm. um most of my kids like they kind of expected that they were always going to get locked up because everyone in their community and a lot of people in their family have been locked up. So they're just repeating these same patterns over and over and over. That's so, so it's not surprising, but it is also very interesting because it's like when you grow up so far removed from that, it's not even in the realm of like that that would ever happen to you. So you imagine that anybody that ends up in prison is like, Oh my God, I never thought this would happen to me. Cause that's how mm-hmm. like I would feel. But when you, but yeah, I mean, it's like when that's your whole life and everybody, you know, has done some kind of time and gotten out and maybe gone back in and it's probably just like, Oh, okay. This makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes part of their identity almost yeah. like someone who gets locked up. And whereas I know for us, it's like, That'd be crazy. I'm definitely not someone who gets locked up. Yeah, but when you're in that world, it's like it's all you know and you don't know and you don't have that kind of 
I don't know, mentorship or, you know, when you're surrounding yourself with people that also get locked up. I can't imagine how confusing that is. But like, um, I, I want to backtrack a little bit, but like, I, I'm kind of interested to see like, what, what, what was it like when you first started? Like, what was, can you even remember like your first client and, and if you've had an overwhelming sense of like, how do I actually help this person? Like, or without getting too specific on who it was, but like to kind of describe that experience. My first client. So, I mean, Okay. So we get taught a lot in school about like white privilege and things like that. And I'm like, yeah, I totally understand that. And I can get where my clients are coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was so, it was a culture shock for me meeting with my first clients, especially my first one, because he was so gang involved. And I was like, wait, this is really foreign for me. And it's kind of rocking my world in a way that I wish it wasn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I was like, I have no clue what to do with a client who's, you know, gangbanging and I'm not really sure how to respond to that. And it's not something I'm used to. Um, but then just like having him, I was like, okay, I don't understand what on earth you're talking about. Can you teach me? Um, seemed to work really well in that situation. Yeah. Because it's like, you don't putting yourself in their shoes as best you can. You already know. I mean, you're, you're locked up. So, you know, you assume like whoever you're talking to has the upper hand because mm-hmm. you're the therapist there to help him. But if you're approaching it, like you, like you really want to understand him. And then he has the opportunity to like, not explain himself, like his actions, but like really let you into his world. Like, this is what the world looks like to me. This is where I think that that's like anytime you know, even, even like, maybe you guys can relate. like growing up, even when I'd get in trouble with my parents, like on a basic level, that's a thing where like, if the, if they're just yelling at me for what I did and tell me how, what I should do better and not asking me, why did you make this decision? What brought you here? What were you thinking at the time? Mm-hmm. If you don't go into all that, I'm like, you don't care and you don't get me. You're just going to tell me what's right and what's wrong. And I'm just going to keep making the same mistakes. So it's kind of like, and my life looks nothing. I can't relate to his lifestyle like that either. But like you're saying, there's always a common thread in how you relate to a person. Mm-hmm. No, completely. Yeah. And do you, um, I don't know, like, do you, because you're a human person, but I know on the other side of it, therapists and social workers are completely professional. So the, pro- the answer is probably no. But for you, have you ever looked at a client's, um, rap sheet for for lack of a better term uh, and kind of been uncomfortable to even want to take their case on I was wondering how how do you you approach that that's a really really good question and I want to see I know it's a lot because you're (laughs) professional it's also like professional it's just like no I'm going to do this but I wonder like for me you know, as a last one, I'd be like, oh, wow, they did this. Like, how do I even begin to try and empathize? Even though I know there's circumstances like that is just so violent. It's so e- evil, maybe. Like, I don't even know if that's a right time. There, there have been. There was one or two. And I think those are the clients who I would genuinely specify as being like, oh, that is a psychopath. Yeah, okay. That person hurts and doesn't care. So maybe even their offenses weren't as egregious or horrendous as some other kids I'd worked with, yeah. but 
their response to it was just like they didn't care how much pain they've caused and that's the part that's always like made me sick yeah so how do you approach those kids because it's like they're going to become adults soon so how do you like begin to try and and heal them you know even though there might not be is i mean do you think if someone if you're like you know I, I can see as best as my in my ability, like I can see and 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 point out that they are a psychopath or like have psychopathic tendencies. Um, do you feel like it's it's sort of a lost cause to try and help them, or like you do your best and you just like hope for the best? This is a loaded question. I'm just so curious. <laughs> no, no, that's, that's a great question. It also touches on something like huge that I could talk for, yeah, I, yeah. for hours. Yeah. Um, so psychopathy, like the actual diagnosis that someone would fall under is antisocial personality disorder. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have issues with that diagnosis, but that's not here or there. Mm. Uh, but when we're actually talking about that as clinicians, it's the only personality disorder that there are no treatments for. And so it's really bleak, which is why I have some issues with that diagnosis, because I think that some people can be treated. Um, But yeah, when we're looking at someone who's genuinely like, seems like they might be a psychopath, there's no, at least not right now, there's no treatment. Because is the thought like, this is like super uh, minimizing it, but like the thought is kind of like, well, they're just missing a piece and you can't. If you're missing a certain piece of like empathy, you can't get through. Basically, yeah, I think it's like the motivation is never going to be there. From what I my understanding of the research is, the motivation is not going to be there. So then they're never going to have that motivation to change and never going to. Um, and that's a very bleak way of looking at it. I yeah. think there is wiggle room in there for people to grow and change. And there are some modalities that have shown some help um mm. but it's it's almost like, age. yeah have you kind of um maybe thought about different treatments because you said you were you love the the topic you could talk about it like is it because like you kind of have an idea of how to approach clients like that or or maybe yeah or can, or yeah. can pinpoint the difference between you know an actual uh a psychopath versus I don't know, a sociopath. I don't, I, I don't know if the term, if it's that much of a difference between the two, I'm sure there, I'm def, I'm definitely sure there are, but you know, versus, you know, like one that's actually treatable and one that's not like, do you have mm-hmm. ideas? So the whole psychopath, sociopath, and maybe I'm too young for those terms or whatever. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, those terms are kind of like, they're not in our diagnostic okay. yeah. manual. So we don't really I don't worry too much about the difference between the two. Gotcha. Um, but one of the things we look at is like antisocial personality disorder with who like doesn't have any empathy and doesn't care. And then there's antisocial personality disorder who kind of can care in some situations. Mm. And I feel like there's, there might be some wiggle room where that's there's that can care yeah um and i feel like the difference there might just be trauma treatment but then again i mean yeah the powers that be tell me that there's nothing right now so i'm not right so 
what I'm curious about is like having the point of view that you have now and you are like kind of seeing firsthand the school to prison pipeline, like what you hear about all the time. And I, unfortunately, I know that it's a thing that a lot of white people don't fully believe exists to that extent. And I'm wondering if you can expound upon like your thoughts of that actual pipeline, like how they are actually society sets these kids up to end up there. Like, what are your thoughts on that concept? I, I mean, and again, I might not be like 100% the best person to speak on this, but from what I've seen, so many of my kids have been just set up to fail from the beginning. And we talked about the, the school to prison pipeline, probably like 50% of my kids, first time they were arrested, it was by an SRO in a school. Wow. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. You go back to their early offenses. It's stuff they're getting arrested for literally inside of schools because their behavior is already being criminalized from a pretty young age. Criminalized yeah. in a school where you're supposed to be learning because there's cops there. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> wow. See, I didn't even I, I didn't even think about it from like yeah, the cops in school point of view. I was literally thinking about it in terms of like they're not given the resources and the, the uh, education and like the, like the, from that aspect of being in school, that's not setting you up. I literally, I'm embarrassed to say, I hadn't even thought about like the cops in the schools arresting them. Yeah. But I knew, I know that they're like, there's a whole kids are targeted and searched disproportionately in school searched by mm -hmm. those cops. Like when they have to walk through the metal detectors and kids of color are way disproportionately searched. And I like didn't even, that's such an obvious connection. No, that's, but we don't think about that to be honest. And that's, yeah. And once, so also like once you're in the system, once, how is that also to their disadvantage? How does that, how much easier is it for them to get thrown back in over and over and over? Cause you hear about that all the time. Like, once you're in, they got you and you, know, you just keep, you're on their radar and you, but, but like, what does that actually mean? And it, do you think that's true? I think that's so, I mean, the sentence you just send once you're in, they've got you. Yeah. I, I probably say that to my clients once, twice, 10 times a week. Really? Wow. Cause when we're talking about like, you got to stay out of the adult system. Cause look at the juvenile system. Like it got its claws into you. And then, you know, that's what it yeah. is. So, yeah, so a lot of kids, they end up getting put on, and this is just, it's state by state, but a few states work like mine do, where they get put on probation first. Um, so you get put on probation, and then it's like any little thing you do, you know, yeah. your uh, ankle monitor falls off or dies, and then you, you know, that's another ticket, that's another thing. And then you start getting arrested for stuff that you wouldn't usually get arrested for because right. someone's really looking at you. And then it just completely snowballs. Right. Think, are things you're talking about, like maybe having like a gram of weed on them or mm -hmm. something, something super minor, right? Yeah. Or even like, you know, positive drug tests. Yeah. Like no one's drug. And so, right, right. It's so weird. But then like, you know, 
it, it, this is like kind of rhetorical, but that it makes you wonder, you're like, well, what, why, why would they want to keep the same people in the system? What do they benefit? There's always people doing real shit that they could go out and arrest. But if, you know what I mean? Like you, you hear that yeah. rebuttal in the sense of like, no, I don't believe people saying like, I don't believe that once you're in, they've got you. What does that even mean? Like, they don't care. I just really want to emphasize that people that grew up like us, like it's real, like it's very real and you don't have to be doing that much or anything, like you said, to be thrown back in. And then people assume, oh, he's been in twice. Oh, he's been out. He's doing some, he's must be doing some bad thing. It's like so unfair. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Was it? Oh, oh, I was going to say like, what kind of advice um, or guidance do you give the kids that you see, I mean, like, I guess they all do, but you see that have the possibility to reoffend. Like, what kind of advice do you give them to just kind of like, you know, I guess it could be like the basic, like stay out of trouble, but like anything that's like a little bit more. Um, like tangible, like tool. Yeah, right, right. Um, I mean, well, I'm sure it's... nothing that's working great. I mean, my recidivism rate isn't awesome. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, uh, how much does that really have to do with you and not just the system, you know? I I blame the system, not me. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I try to be as real with them as I can be like as honest about like, you know, that we always work on like, what are your triggers? What's going to screw mm-hmm. you up on the outs? And be really honest about the fact like, okay, smoking weed isn't a huge issue for most people. However, for you, that's going to get you locked back up and that'll lead to this. And then you'll come back in and be stuck in the system. Um, So trying to be as real as I can be and just like highlight the fact that like the system's fucked up and you need to learn how to manage within it in order to just get out of it. And is that approach the same for, uh, your clients of color versus your white clients that might not reoffend. Um, most of my clients, I'm worried more about like minor reoffenses than than large ones mm-hmm. when they're getting out. Just because we're all worried about the large ones all the time. Um, my approach is the same for all clients, but I do try to just make sure we have that space for maybe more frank conversations with my clients of color. Yeah. Um, my kids are pretty, they're not woke yeah. by any means. Cause they're just trying to survive and they're not yeah. on yeah, that yeah. level, but even without all that, and they don't super always know what's going on in society. They all know that the white kids are less likely to get arrested. Yeah. They all know that like what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, So they're the first ones to always bring that into the conversation. Yeah. So, uh, so many layers. Cause it's like, you know, how unfair the world is towards you specifically for no other reason than like the body you were born into. And it's like, how are you supposed to not have anger when that's your life? And then like, I mean, it's just crazy. It's like, how do you channel, how do you channel that? Like, do you also work? I don't know. Like, what are some of the things that you, do you talk to them about a wide range of stuff from like, like martial arts and boxing to like meditation to like those kinds of tools to as an outlet or like creativity? I don't know. What angles do you go with? 
So we, I mean, I do all different therapies with all my kids. Uh, meditation's a big one. My kids yeah. love a nice guided meditation. Wow. Um, huh. Yeah, I know. It's the most hilarious. I love yeah. that. I love that. <laughs> they'll just, they'll really get into it, which is beautiful. Um, and we talk about those other outlets, but those other outlets, we got to be like, especially within our system. Like I can tell a kid, I know you want to punch something. Yeah. I can't tell you to go punch your pillow because if you break your hand, then I'm liable. Like, right. Oh, I see. There are so many limitations. Mm -hmm. Um, so, Oh, that's so annoying. <laughs> it's well, so I can it kind of, uh, brings me to a question I want to ask you, like now that you are, it's interesting because you're in the system, like you're part of the system, but you're trying to stop the system from getting a hold of these kids. So it's like this interesting thing, like from the inside. Mm -hmm. So do you have like hypothetically like grand goals for yourself in terms of prison reform itself? Or is it, it like, do you want to go that structural with it in your career of like the entire prison system and how it's set up and the school to prison pipeline? Or do you prefer the one-on-one -on -one changes you can make one-on-one -on -one with a person and not taking on a whole system? I love micro work. I love working on a one-on-one -on -one level and working with trauma um, yeah. and being able to like promote healing on that level mm. on a personal level. Like I always want to be advocating for policy that gets us closer to just abolishing prisons. And, yeah. um, so like on a personal level, I want that stuff and I'm going to advocate for that stuff outside of work. Yeah. Right. Um, but within my work, that stuff can be, so there's a saying that we use, have you guys ever heard the story of the, uh, starfish? No, I don't think so. No. Oh, it's a good story. <laughs> um, <laughs> I love starfish. <laughs> basically, there's this um, boy and this old man on a beach and the young boy, they're like starfish washed up. You know how sometimes starfish just get washed up on mm -hmm. a beach? Uh -huh. So the little boy is picking up the starfish one by one and throwing them back in. And there are hundreds. And the old man says, why are you even bothering doing that? You're never going to save them all. Um, and then the little boy picks up the starfish and he throws one in and says, made a difference to that one. Mm. Uh, um, oh, I so like that. I love, it's a really good one. Yeah. Um, Wait, honestly, like that's the, the real change does have to start there. And I, I believe that on like a lot of real levels, like especially social reform levels where, you know, even when it comes to, uh, racism, it's like the big things like protesting and even like posting on social media, the things that have the biggest reach are important. But honestly, the, th the times where I feel like this is where the seeds are planted, it's a one-on-one -on -one conversation with somebody where you, your perspective has changed or theirs is, mm -hmm. or you both are and you both learn and you are open to growing. It's like that, like that micro stuff like you're talking about that really, it makes me think like, okay, if these big changes are going to happen, these big changes that we're fighting for on the outside or like in a, in a bigger way, if those are going to happen, they're only going to happen once these smaller things start happening more. So it is like the most powerful place to be at the same time. Like what you're doing is the real root of it all. 
And like, there's so much value to macro stuff. Um, when my mom was in school, she was explaining it to me like uh, micro practice is being the boy who's throwing the starfish back. Mm. And then macro practice is like trying to change the currents of the ocean so that starfish yeah. don't keep getting washed up. Mm-hmm. And there's so much value to that. But I also yeah. feel like personally, I would be exhausted constantly trying to change the way the ocean works. Right. Because you don't yeah. get the satisfaction of like, I see this starfish, I saw him on the land and I saw him land in the water and I know that his life, it, like you don't get that tangible, personal, immediate, mm-hmm. it's not immediate, but you know what I mean? Satisfaction of like, this is, I see that change that I made. It's more just like you're hoping that after you die, this cause is continued on and things happen. <laughs> Someday someone will change the current. Right. It's like people that fought you know, they were like marching in the 60s and who are now like passing away or really, and they're watching it all happen again. And it's just like, oh, hopefully one day we get closer, like <laughs> as opposed to like watching a, a person that you counseled through their youth, like grow up and have a successful life. And then you're like, wow, that was like something I was Worth, involved in. Yeah. Do you notice that like a lot of your coworkers feel the same way you do on that, like wanting to kind of change, but, you know, and also recognizing the system and and all its flaws? Like, do do you notice like everyone's kind of on the same level with that? Or the same page? Um, I mean, it depends. It's corrections. Yeah. Yeah. So (laughs) many Blue Lives Matter bumper stickers. Gotcha. 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 Do you, sorry, I'm like, cut, cut you off. Go ahead. (laughs) It's, I think the therapists are a little more open, but even then, I don't know. I'm a little careful about some of the conversations I have because Mm -hmm. going into work and being like, what about abolishing this place guys? (laughs) It's like, no. (laughs) What about burning the shit to the ground? (laughs) Yeah. Why don't we just do that? Uh, not, not a crazy popular. Well, that's interesting. Like how many times have you felt so conflicted with, you know, when you're listening to your clients and and you're hearing like what's getting them, uh, reoffend, keep saying reoffended, um, like getting them back into the system. And like, do you ever feel conflicted with the higher ups, you know, wanting to be like, no, this isn't right. Why is this person here? But also when you're in that one-on-one time, not having that energy, so it's not, you know, so you're still kind of have that authority and trying to guide them at the same time, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I think I'm more conflicted within myself than with anybody else. Mm -hmm. Because there are times when I find myself being like, like I worry a lot for my kids' safety when they're out Um, sometimes they're on the run, but I like, they're still kind of part of our system and we're looking for them. Um, and my, I find myself having thoughts of like, I really want this kid locked up right now. Uh, because I'm super scared. He's going to get killed on the streets. Yeah. Interesting. And that doesn't always sit well. Yeah. But I mean, well, and that's why, that's why also, um, thinking like in the adult system, I don't know about the kids, but like so many men, they get out and they just, all they know is being inside. They'd rather be back in because they get meals. They have somewhere to sleep. And they just like, I mean, honestly, from all angles, society is like out to get 
certain populations where it's like life is so miserable on the outside. The only way you can survive is by committing this and this and this crime just to protect yourself and your family. And then the only way to get a warm meal and a bed is to be in prison. And I mean, I understand that thought process, like what you're saying, because you know how dangerous it's not like when people get out, they get put out into fucking suburbs, into Whitopia. And like, it's like they, they know they get put back into the world that that brought them up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tricky. Because you're also going back to like your social circles, your family, your friends, all the people that created your mindset. And then how do you like, do you have to. Do you bring up to them? Because it's like you you can't just be like, okay, when you get out, I need you to cut off all your friends and make new ones. Yeah, right, <laughs> like, right. You know, it just seems like it's a hard thing. Yeah, what's what's a way that you kind of approach that not without outright saying cut all these people out of your life? What's a more <laughs> useful way to to help someone in that situation? I think so... The vast majority of the kids I work with are gang involved. So that's a lot of times where I come from. Um, Understanding what they want. Like, what do you love about your friends? It's always where we start Mm. is like, what's the good stuff about your gang? Tell me about how great your friends are. Like, I want to understand. And then also understanding, like, what do you want that to look like in the future? Like, can you, are you not even willing to change your friends? Because if not, like, we're not even going to talk about it. Right. and then if you do want to change your life, is it even safe for you to drop your gang? Like, is right. that a realistic goal for you? Right. Um, so there are a lot of steps in that. And it's rough. It's a really hard thing. But these kids are really used to people coming in and saying, like, stop being friends with your friends. Right. They all suck. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and I think that's an interesting mm. thing that you said, like, you get them to talk about what do you love about your friends? possibly allows them to separate the people who -hmm. their friends are from the things that they get out of it. And maybe that allows them to be like, okay, what's important to me isn't necessarily, or like, it's not about this one person. It's not about like what Mike said. It's that Mike makes me feel this way and I want to feel this way. So there's a possibility you could get that from, I guess just separating the people from how they, how the people make you feel is probably really important because it's not like it's always going to click, but I would imagine that's one way for them to realize like, oh, it doesn't have to be these specific people. I can still find ways to feel this way. I don't know. It's an interesting separation. And with, uh, you know, when you were talking about how you feel conflicted because you, you know, you, you know that, that, that this person maybe should be locked up because there's so much, there's so many dangerous things happening around them and that it might be safer for them to be in the system. So, you know, with, with your beliefs and, and, and kind of what we're talking about, like, how do you see the system reforming? So it's not just, Oh, I wish this person was locked up. Like, what do you think would be a better alternative in in a, in a perfect world and a, in a utopian America where we actually figured out how to defund the police in, in, in a in a logistical way like I, I i don't know this could be another loaded question <laughs> no that's a really and that's something i spend a lot of time thinking about like what do i think would work yeah. because i know that what we're doing isn't working right um i think 
it would have to start with like, we're reforming neighborhoods. We're reforming because yeah, right. my kids aren't the problem. Like right. the problem started generations ago. Um, and so it's giving time, setting up programs, being okay with those programs, not working. Cause it's going to take many years for mm-hmm. change to be made. Um, like desegregating schools, desegregating neighborhoods, making sure that everybody has access mm-hmm. to the same resources, the same food, the same housing, um, and making sure that families are secure from the start so that we're not having kids grow up in these insecure families and like playing out these trauma stories yeah. again and again and again. Um, yeah. In, in ideal America. Yeah. That's what right. it would look like. and, and then we just, we wouldn't need me. Well, maybe not so much. Cause I, cause with the, with the defund the police argument, it's a lot uh, to do with taking a lot of money out, but also putting that money into, into the neighborhoods into right, like, but into would... social work as well. So there would be mon- more money in your department and, and correct me if I'm wrong, would it, does that, would that mean all, calling 911 doesn't mean police showing up? It would mean you showing up specifically. Right. That would be amazing. When people started having these conversations, which I've been so excited about hearing these defund the police conversations yeah. happening, um, it took me back to my first job in the community out, out of school where I worked with only girls in a group home and we called the police a lot because yeah. um, legally that's what we needed to do. But we'd have this situation that was like this big of a deal and then cops would come and put their hands on the kid yeah. and then it'd be this big of a deal. And even then I didn't think about the idea that like, oh, a social worker could do this better. Um mm. But now the taught. idea of like, oh my God, could you imagine if that was a social worker coming in and de-escalating instead of trying to handcuff a 10-year-old who's trying to kill herself? Like, right. why was that even the option? Yeah. Right. Like, why does that even, let's inflict more violence and pain and trauma to this person who's at the most traumatic point in their life right now. Yeah. Like, it, it just, it's so backwards and it's, yeah. I so I kind of going back to like the, the atmosphere for you professionally I find it so fascinating because I'm curious, like as a therapist in the prison system, it's, it's kind of counterintuitive. I feel like prisons just have therapists now because they were told that they had to. And it's like, you're kind of counterintuitive to what they are doing essentially, you know, it's like, no, I believe in like reform by like working with these people as humans, talking to them, you know. Yeah, it's like very much like the, like call, the call is so coming from inside the house. Like, it's, yeah, yes. yeah. <laughs> so it's like, I wonder, do you, is there a sense of, um, like you, when you're there, when you're the other employees at the prison who are not in social work or there or in therapy like that, do you feel like they, you're not taken seriously or you're just like, Oh, the therapist is here. Good luck. Like we know, is it that kind of atmosphere sometimes? <sighs> like, you're an outsider, even though you work for the, I don't know. We are very unique and very lucky in that, um, and this creates a weird dynamic, but the therapists are actually the ones who determine, our kids aren't sentenced to us. Like they're, you have to come to us, but you aren't like sentenced for a year or two years Uh, or whatever. uh. You're sentenced to complete treatment with your therapist. And then your therapist determines essentially when you've met the requirements to be safe and be released. So in that sense, we get a weird amount of like 
power. I feel like we almost get, we have a lot of power and other people kind of see that. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit, I mean, I feel like some people are like, you don't understand what it's like to be like a corrections officer. Mm -hmm. Cause I never have to put my hands on a kid. Right. I don't mm -hmm. have to deal with stuff like that. Um, so there's a little bit of that, but for the most part, everyone's pretty equal. Cause we're all in the same units. Okay. We're all working with the okay. same kids. Um, that's so our facility specifically is really, really lucky in that it, it values therapy. That's cool. That's something, yeah, I was really curious about that. I'm like, you go to an environment, like you said, I know you're not like engaging in conversation about like abolishing prisons while yeah. you're there, but mm -hmm. just the, just the like mentality of like the worth of your work, if you feel valued while you're there by, it, not by the kids, but by, by the people that work at the prison. Yeah. And that's interesting too. Like, do you ever feel pressure? Um, you know, even with like knowing what you know and 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 being so interested in defunding the police and the conversations around that and and the logic behind that, like, do you ever feel like pressure to uh, have to kind of sentence longer um, or or stricter punishments, like from from your higher ups, I keep saying higher ups <laughs> from your superiors, you know, like, do you ever yeah. feel like you have to sentence them, even though you're just like, God damn it. I don't know if this is going to be really helpful, but I don't know. Do, yeah, you ever, yeah. do you ever come into that problem? Yeah. There are situations on both sides of that. I've had a couple times where people have been like, you need to keep this kid longer. And I've been like, I've done all the work I can do. I genuinely don't think this kid can improve. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's always nerve wracking. And then there have been other times where uh, honestly, it's almost more frequently that um, they're telling me like this kid's been here too long. It's right. time for him to leave. And I'm like, no, I think there's still work we can do to make him safer mm -hmm. in the community. Um, and both of those, there's an immense amount of like pressure to like make the right choice. Yeah. And there's no way to know what the right choice is. Cause God forbid that kid gets hurt in the community or he really mm -hmm. hurts someone mm -hmm. uh, is a lot of pressure. So do you, do you professionally, I'm, professionally, I'm sure I'm you can't, sure you but can. like once they're out, you can't be like a contact like with a them. Contact you can't be like, you can't if you, be like or, can or can you? I can. You can. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So we are super, super lucky kind of <laughs> in the fact that um, parole is part of our same agency. Oh. Um, so all my kids get therapy in the community, but if it takes a while for that to get set up, I'll set up like weekly phone calls with a kid. Oh. I'll call their cell phone and be like, hey, what's going on? You doing okay? Mm. How'd you handle this situation? Yeah. Um, Oh, yeah, so, so we still good. get to be there. And are they like receptive to it for the most part to keep in contact and, and want to do that? Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> most of them are like, eh, that's fine. But I do have, I have one kid right now who like every week we, we eat lunch and talk mm -hmm. and see how things are going. And he wants to be troubleshooting while he's out there. Cause like, I just wanted to know, I'm not surprised that a lot of them don't like take you up on it, but that that opportunity is there for them. Cause I'm like wondering like how many things are just cut off at how Sorry. much are these kids cut off at the legs when they're released back out in the sense yeah. of like, great, we gave you all these resources and good luck good with luck. it. Yeah. See ya when, maybe we'll see you again soon. Like, 
yeah, it, regardless of if I'm not surprised, a lot of them don't keep in touch, but also like the knowledge that they can, like that a familiar face that somebody they know who knows their story and, and like cares. I think that's important. I feel like for a lot of them, at least, or at least I'm hopeful, like I give them my number and all sorts of resources when they leave. Mm -hmm. And at least they know like, hey, if something goes crazy, I can't yeah. call her. And, and I'm sure that this is a job that you cannot uh, leave it, leave at work and then come home. Right. <laughs> like, exactly. This is like your life, like you're tied to these people and what happens to them. And, and like you said, you have the pressure of making these calls on their life that you're doing the best you can. And then, mm. I mean, I can imagine, like, you know, it's not your fault if, if they're out and then something happens, it's not. But I also know that in your position, if I were you, I would too would feel like, oh my God, I shouldn't have, like, that was my fault. I should have, I mean, how, how do you, do you need therapy? Like after <laughs> Yes, everyone needs therapy. Honestly, yes, yeah, true. I believe that. Yeah. <laughs> like, how, yeah. Um, it's, there definitely are times and I try my best to leave it at work, but there are days when I'm like, I need to go like straight to bed yeah. or have a glass of wine or whatever. Cause I'm really upset about, I mean, there are things that happen. It's just the nature of the work. Yeah. That's really, really intense. Mm -hmm. Um, so sometimes it's crazy, but then I think the more I have crazy things happen, the more I'm like, okay, I know how to deal with this. Uh -huh. I know that I can cope with what just happened because I've done it before. Yeah. It's okay. And like the longer you do it, while you have more of those crazy things happen or really hard emotional things, you probably also accumulate like the rewards of your career also probably become, hopefully become stronger. Like you're more enforced with like, I am on the right path. This is what I'm meant mm -hmm. to be doing. Like the, those feelings have to overpower you coming home and feeling like the wind's knocked out of you. I think someone once gave me this advice and I'm sorry that I have no clue who, <laughs> um, but basically that you can never take responsibility for the awful stuff that happens to your clients or the bad stuff that they do, but you need to always take responsibility for the good stuff that happens. Oh. Uh, just selfishly quietly to yourself be like yeah i did that that could successful because of me because that's like kind of what keeps you going yeah and yeah. we need more people like you so i mean anything to keep you involved so there's more mm -hmm. you know I, I just feel like i mean i felt like this before our conversation but especially knowing like certain circumstances like i just feel like we need more of you and less police and with that i just feel like <laughs> You know, with what happened in Minneapolis with, you know, right, because they're defunding the police right mm -hmm. in there. So how how likely do you see this happening? Like, do you see a, like a ripple effect in other states and maybe in yours as well of this actually becoming a reality for you? It's weird. If you had asked me like six months ago, because I've been saying we should get rid of. Prison. Yeah, but yeah. like no way in hell was that a con like a. <laughs> Realistic. No <laughs> that was like a stupid pipe dream. Uh -huh. Um and now I'm like, oh my God, like I think people actually like this idea and yeah. seem to want it. Um I probably feel I'm like cautiously optimistic right now, mm -hmm. but I think we could actually make some differences, which is huge and amazing. And I think like people hearing people who are skeptical of like like yeah, it'd be great, but what then it's just 
r- people running amok on the streets and there's no it's like the understanding that no there's still protocols in place and there's enforcement happening but it's a lot not of work. the police and so yeah. hearing people need to hear professionals like you talking about what you do and what would like there's always going to be someone on the end of the phone when you call 911 it's just a matter of mm-hmm. who comes and what they're trained to do and i think a lot of people confuse like defunding the police with like no police get, or get nothing. Rid of, yeah, no police, yeah, no, nothing. no, no, nothing. Yeah, like no nine Yeah, yeah. And so I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to you and your colleagues. And I mean, honestly, that's like it. I personally believe that is like some of the most important work that any human on this planet is doing right now. I, I'd really mean that. Amen. Like. Thank you. High praise for someone who just sits and, and talks with kids and no, plays cards with gangsters. That's right. That's all you do. <laughs> if I knew that was all you did, like, why would, oh, we shouldn't have even had her on a list. Yeah. What the hell? It's like, well, yeah. Um, what, what is, what would you say is one of, one of, or your one SOS moment? So, uh, like I was mentioning before the call, my SOS moment took me so long to find because <laughs> There are like millions. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a, every time a lot I of our guests like an SOS moment to find their SOS moment. So we what totally I, understand that. I feel like for you, after hearing your story, it's like, um, yeah, every day that I go into work, um, uh, the there's a new system. SOS moment. <laughs> it's, it really is like anytime I'm faced with something new from a client, I'm like, oh, yeah. that like blows my world. And then I figure it out. Yeah. Um, so once I discovered that, I went back to my very first interaction with my very first client Mm. uh, when I got out of school. So it was my second day on the job at um, a facility that works with just girls. It was all Mm -hmm. young girls. Um, And my coworker, who I found out a little bit into this incident, had only worked there for a week, was training me that day. And (laughs) he pulls me into his office and he's like, and I'm going to change all the details. I mean, obviously this isn't real. Uh, He's like, this is Sarah. She's your client. Want to come sit with us? We're waiting for a crisis because Sarah is intent on killing herself right now. And it was very matter of fact. And I was like, cool, Sarah, we're just going to hang out. Yeah. Um, So I'm sitting there waiting with Sarah. And how old was Sarah? She was uh, 15. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So it's me, this 15 year old girl. I'm like, this is my client. This is my first crisis situation properly. Um, And I have no clue what I'm doing. I just got my keys and I'm not even sure like how to get around. Like, I don't know where I'm getting lunch this afternoon because I'm not sure where the cafeteria is. So, but I've got Sarah and my um, beautiful, wonderful coworker disappears to somewhere. And Sarah turns to me and she's like, can I go to the bathroom? And I was like, that's a great question. I have no clue. Uh, um, oh my God. And someone's like, yeah, sure. Send her to the bathroom. She goes to the bathroom. She's in the bathroom for like 10 minutes. And mm. I'm like, okay, again, faced with, I don't know what I'm doing. Mm, yeah. uh, Sarah, are you cool? And Sarah's not cool. Um <sighs> She eventually comes out of the bathroom, which I'm like, thank God. Okay, we're out of the bathroom. That's cool because I was trying to figure out how to get into the bathroom. And again, is that appropriate? She's 15. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Sarah comes out of the bathroom and she starts running. 
And so now I'm like, okay, I'm running too. We're running together. I'm chasing you. That seems wrong. I don't think chasing you is the right idea, but I'm not sure what to do. Um, so as she's running, she runs out the gates of the facility and, uh, there's my coworker and a couple police officers and I'm running too. And I'm like, Oh, we're running. Can you run with us? I don't know why we're running or where we're running to, but I'm still following Sarah. So now it's, you know, my client, I'm chasing her behind me is my coworker behind him or several cops and people who work at our facility. And now we're all running together. We're going on a job. Yeah. Um, and Sarah starts running. We're on a really busy street. So she's running straight for traffic and everyone else is behind me. And I'm like, why am I faster than all of you guys? Um, and it occurs to me, Sarah's thinking about jumping into traffic. Oh, no. I'm like, have this, I have three thoughts run through my head as we start approaching this street. Um, and the first is like, I think running into the street with her is the wrong choice. And I think I might get fired if I do it. The second is 100% I'm running into the street with this girl. Yeah. Uh, that's happening. And the third is, damn, I really don't like the idea of getting hit by a car. <laughs> Just simultaneously all of those. Um, and so I'm running and I'm trying to say whatever therapeutic like BS that I can to try to convince Sarah to like, Hey, let's not run into these cars together. That doesn't sound like fun. I just met you. You're great. Let's do something. Yeah. Um, and by the grace of God, we are in my mind, I can still see it. We are like a step away and she starts slowing down. One of the cops catches up to us and runs in front of her and kind of grabs her and starts moving us the other way. Um, and I still don't know where to get my lunch or what I'm doing or how to document anything that just happened. Cause I'm brand new at this right. job. Um, and it was just the most ridiculous. She was fine. Uh, we did therapy together for many moons mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. she is beautiful. And as far as I know, safe. Yeah. Um, and everything ended up okay that yeah. day. Did you ever, um, like, was she trying to run into the street? Do you know? hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And that wasn't the last time, you know, this happened. It wasn't the last time I had a client self-harm with me there. It wasn't the last time. Oh my God. It wasn't even the last time I ran into traffic. Yeah. Um, that job was crazy, but all I felt after that moment, I know it sounds like this insane, stupid thing, kind of traumatic. All I felt was relief because my biggest fear as a therapist was always that I wouldn't know what was going on. Mm -hmm. And I had no clue what the hell I was doing, but I did it and it turned out fine. Yeah. And there have been now countless times in my job where that's happened, but being able to get through that moment and knowing that, Oh my God, I can totally do it. Even when I don't know what I'm doing, Yeah. things will be okay. Um, that was just the biggest moment for me learning that so early on and like, and now being able to remember it and be like, Oh, right. I'm fine. Mm. Was it kind of a lesson in learning to trust your instincts? Because I, I would imagine at a certain point where you're like, Oh, I'm never going to get, I'm, there's not a destination that I reach where I know how to handle everything that comes my way with this mm. job. Like if that's not a place you get to. So once you acknowledge that, I guess all you could hope to be able to trust and lean on are your own instincts. And in that moment, I guess you, you saw what yours were. Is that what it felt like? 
Kind of. And it also like, it also just taught me like, oh, I'm never going to know what I'm doing. Right. <laughs> and I'm not even sure my instincts were right. Like going right. back in my head, I'm like, mm-hmm. I know that like I didn't make all the right choices, but I have no clue what the right choices would have been. Right. Um, but just that like, I can do everything wrong and everything can go wrong. And sit with that and be okay with that was really huge for me being able to recognize that you know I would imagine in that job too you could do everything right and it goes wrong so yeah so it's like yeah what a hard to have to to be able to release yourself from that mentality of like things being black and white because they're not yeah (laughs) unless you look at the color of people in prison (laughs) yeah there it comes. <laughs> Except for that. Uh, gosh, that wow. is, that's amazing. Uh, that's an amazing story. And you are an amazing person for all the work that you do. And, oh, you're very kind. And I want to thank you so much for spending time with us to talk about it. And I mean, I could talk about this with you for a long time. Like, this is amazing. Yeah. Um, like maybe even like have you on again like i i would love that yeah just to I would love that whenever i've got nothing else going yes. <laughs> well, i definitely don't <laughs> lucky us I, I really like i would love to have a follow-up episode with you yeah yeah 100 um, oh you guys are amazing this was so sweet oh good i'm so again thank you so much for spending time with us um yeah thank you thank you thank you thank you you're amazing mm-hmm. anytime Thank you again to Marcy. That was amazing. Like we can't yeah. say it enough how thankful we are that she spent time to talk to us about this because like we said, we are so passionate about this and obviously so is she. So talking to her and learning more about this was a treat. Yeah. Very eye-opening, pulling at your heartstrings and at the same time making me just like that much more furious with the system we have set up and Mm -hmm. but like I said I'm to her but I'm honestly I think that is some of the most important beautiful righteous work any human in our country at least can be doing yeah and yeah and if you're hearing a lot about defund the police defund the police and are still confused about what that means like and we said this in the interview like we it would mean more people like Marcy being on the front lines of a lot of those 911 calls, de-escalating uh, situations so they don't get out of hand. So it's not just violence on violence, you know? Yeah, and like people specializing in, just like she says, at, at the prison, there are different units based on the crime. So why are there not that? There's 10 units just in her prison so it's like why are there not that many at least that many phone numbers when a situation is happening because that's how vastly different situations are and so Mm -hmm. that is it it's like it's not it's not calling for no law enforcement or no help or no it's it's saying like we understand that not every situation is the same and and not everybody is equipped to handle the same like why not use utilize the professionals that specialize in yep. whether it's mental health or or addiction or f- physical violence or like there are specialists in these areas that are very highly informed highly trained capable and- because another thing i think people get confused with is like great you're just going to have put a they think therapist and they also think just like somebody sitting in a chair talking to you and it's like no there are different 
there's always like like I said, there's always going to be someone on the end of the line when you call nine one one. It's yeah. a matter of like who it's directed to. And it remains, it's like every, everything would be reformed. Like even her job would be reformed. It would right. be a different sort of training right? Uh, that she would need to, and other people would need to go through to properly handle situations like this because it's not a one size fits all. Mm-hmm. And it shouldn't be. And uh, little by little, hopefully we start seeing that. So yeah. 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 Um, for this week's charity nonprofit, we have the Children's Defense Fund. Um, the Children's Defense Fund champions policies and programs to improve the odds for America's children. They seek to end child poverty, give every child a healthy start, a quality early childhood experience, a level education playing field, and safe families and communities free from violence, with special attention to children involved in the child welfare and juvenile justice systems. Uh, the Children's Defense Fund works to ensure more humane and rehabilitative prevention and treatment for all children who come in contact with the juvenile justice system, especially children of color who historically have been disproportionately impacted. Their policy and advocacy work includes raising awareness, gathering and analyzing data, publishing reports and research, highlighting promising practices, seeking legislative and administrative improvements, and implementing policies that truly benefit the most vulnerable children. To learn more and donate to them, you can visit um, childrensdefense.org. That's uh, great. Yeah. And uh, if you liked this episode, if you like all our episodes, please show us some love on all the platforms in which we're streaming. Spotify, Google, iTunes, Apple Podcasts, um, to name a few. Please give us five stars. Please shoot us a review because it helps us in the algorithm to reach out mm -hmm. to more people. Um and it really yeah. helps us, like, honestly, you know, we're still a new podcast. We started in January. So even topic wise, if you want to write a review and be like, I love or slash don't love when they talk about these types of things, um, you know, because we want to work with our listeners and know who you guys are and what you care about. So we can, you Improve. know, talk yeah. about those things. <laughs> Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, let us know our IG. Follow us on our Instagram and Twitter at the SOS Pod. We are on YouTube. Check out, check us out there. Uh, just search SOS with Molly and Alyssa, and you will find all our episodes there and all our pretty faces. And uh, yeah, thanks for tuning in. And here's to turning meltdowns into magic. <laughs>